am Stephanie McNeil, he's Saeed Jones, and it's President's Day, but we're here and you're watching AM to DM. Right, President's. Whatever. Uh, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News World editor Marian Elder. We know her. We love her. Um, she tweeted, only talk to me if you are angry about Drag Race. And that's why I'm able to talk to Miriam, because I'm pissed. Yeah, I'm everyone was talking about this this morning in our production meeting. I unfortunately don't watch Drag Race. I'm really bad at watching any TV. I only really consistently watch The Bachelor, and that's I was about it. to say, I know you watch The Bachelor. I do, okay. I do. I, I consistently lose about five followers every Monday tweeting about The Bachelor, but... <laughs> Ready to risk it all for The Bachelor. I am. Well, I, I've got an analogy for you, because I am angry about how the finale went down for All Stars 4. It would be like um, if at the end of, you know, a, a passionate, wonderful season of The Bachelor, everyone's watching, we get there, and it's time for him to, I guess, propose. And he's like, actually, two roses, two rings. I want sister wives. Honestly, <laughs> I feel like that's from, like, your mouth to Chris Harrison's ears. Like, he's, I feel like he's going to do that to, like, do it next year. Because, like, oh he's God. like, they're all about the ratings, right? Oh, that's true. And I guess maybe, that, you know, maybe that's just something. Listen, I've been watching Drag Race for damn near a decade now, which is kind of crazy. And it's, like, one of those things where it's, like, a show that was, like, pretty indie. It was, like, in the cut. It, you know, just, yeah. like, just. All of a sudden, everyone started tweeting it's about it. Stream, right? And it's great. It's got all these Emmys and Golden Globes or whatever, and you know, it's on VH1, but it feels like the pressures of mainstream attention begin to impact it. So, yeah, that's what happened basically on Friday, in my opinion. We had two queens crowned as America's next all star. Like, it doesn't make sense. Right. Like, it. And what? It, it already was all stars, right? Yeah. So you would think that that's supposed to be like, okay, this is, like, yeah, this is the cream of the crop. And yeah. We're going to choose the one. But you actually told me all of this stuff that I had no idea yeah. about, that there was actually a lot of complicated politics behind the scenes yeah. of this show. Can yeah. you talk about that? I, you know, listen, I, I'm going to try to keep, I'm trying to keep it cute. Um, I, I feel like the show has a long held um, investment in white femininity, right? Like skinny, pretty white drag queens. When drag is like super diverse and all over the place, yeah. sometimes drag is ugly and it looks different and it's wild. And But it, there's a very mainstream, you know, aesthetic that, you know, lines up with how Rue herself kind of presents herself. And so, yeah, the, for all of All Stars, there's never been a black all-star winner, period, right? Most of the seasons, most of the contestants um, that make it the farthest tend to be white as well um, and win. Um, so and so, weird. yeah, and so to get um, to, you know, All-Stars 4 and um, for Monet Exchange, who's wonderful, she's a great queen from New York City, to be crowned a queen. But, oh, wait, Trinity, who's also great too, I want to say, to also be crowned queen. Like, listen, we're watching Game of Thrones, right? If at the end, we're like, who sits on the Iron Throne? Everybody. It, it cheapens the entire point. So it's just frustrating. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But are, you're gonna keep watching it, right? I am. You're not, I am. This isn't you're quitting the show. It. You can't quit the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like season eleven starts like tomorrow, but I'm gonna keep watching it for now. Um. So we wanted to take that question to the timeline. What's a long-running show that you continue to watch even though it's just constantly pissing you off? But you're like, listen, I'm too far in. Uh, let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. I guess. For me, that was Glee. I hated Dang. every character on that godforsaken <laughs> show, and I continued to watch it. All right, well, let's get to the big news of the weekend, because it's something that I know everyone watching has been talking about all weekend. Here is a tweet from the Chicago Sun-Times. As the Chicago Police Department investigation into the reported attack on Jesse Smollett enters new territory, 
The Empire actor's attorney says Smollett plans to speak with detectives as soon as Monday, so today. Today, and new territory is a very diplomatic way of putting Very diplomatic. <laughs> the way this whole story is gone. Of course, the new information comes after some significant updates in the case over the weekend. I know you all saw it on Twitter. Um, here's a tweet from the Chicago Tribune about it. 12 hours after calling them possible suspects, uh, the Chicago Police Department released two brothers they had been questioning about a reported attack against the actor Jesse Smollett without filing any charges, citing new evidence that they also did not disclose. And listen, I mean, this is one of those stories, I would say aside from like the national emergency, which we'll be discussing later, not just was it all over Twitter, people were texting me as if I know what the hell is going on. Um, you are a breaking news editor, so I kind of wanted to turn to you this morning because it feels like I don't want to contribute to misinformation. There are a lot of rumors out there. So I just wanted to turn to you from your perspective. What's a productive way to talk about this? It's very interesting because I was away this weekend, so I was kind of out of pocket from the whole breaking news thing. And so this morning I kind of sat down and I was like, okay, I've been reading all these rumors on Twitter. Right. I've been reading everything. Let me see exactly what BuzzFeed News has reported. And I was actually surprised to see how little of the information that's been floating around has been confirmed mm. by us and by very many reputable news outlets like the Chicago Sun-Times. You know, they're really, a lot of the rumors that are floating around just really haven't, they're just that, they're just rumors. Mm. There's a lot of leaks, there's a lot of anonymous sources being used. What we do know is that the latest we have from the Chicago Sun-Times is that they want to talk to Jesse. They want to have a meeting with him, and his attorney says he's— The Chicago he is, police. Yeah, the Chicago police, and he's totally willing to go in, have that meeting with the Chicago police, so that may happen today. We don't know. Um, but that's all we really know at this point. We know that the two brothers, that was the last big development, the two brothers have been— Released, They are no longer considered suspects, right. but there has not been a ton of new information right. that we really can nail down since that came out on Friday. Yeah, and, and of course, that is huge when you're talking about a possible hate crime, right? The two, the only two possible suspects, as, as far as any of us knew in this case, are no longer considered suspects. Right. Um, is Jesse himself being considered a suspect? Because no, that's one of the things that's, that's a big around. That's a big piece of misinformation mm. that's floating around. And the Chicago Police Department said over the weekend that he is not being considered an offender. He's not being classified as an offender. Now, that is extremely opaque, That's I'm really sure funny. on purpose. Right. Um, but yeah, for now, he is not being charged with anything as far as we know. All we know is there's no suspects right now in the case. We okay. don't know you know, what will happen in the future. Thank you for that clarity. Listen, uh, this is a very much a developing story. Jesse, of course, as you mentioned, is expected, hopefully, to speak with the Chicago police as recently, as soon as this morning. Um, so, you know, 30 minutes from now, we might get some new information and maybe we will try to, on air, address it. But I wanted to say that this is obviously heartbreaking, sad, and disappointing, no matter how it shakes out, right? Because so many of us um, have been impacted by anti, uh, you know, black, anti-LGBT violence, people we know, people we care about, or ourselves. Um, and, and that is true no matter what happened in this case, right? That is something we want to take seriously. But also, clearly whatever's going on is very troubling. Oh, of course. And even no matter what happened, there's some very sad things happening. Yeah. No matter what is the truth, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, it's not something that we should be rejoicing in. You know, right. a lot of people, you know, have been putting out a lot of statements that are, you know... Kind of gloating, it Gloating, like. yeah. yeah. And, you know, this is obviously a sad situation. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we don't want to get into any speculation, but no matter what happened, 
It's yeah. not good. Yeah. I it's tweeted this good. yesterday and I was not joking. I was like, we're just going to have to pray. You know, like this is this is crazy. I mean, Jesse Smollett was, you know, on a live, you know, national television talking to Robin Roberts, you know, just seemingly a week ago. And like, that's a wild occurrence for the story to develop. But we will continue to stay on it as best we can. Um, and and if he's he still, them, he, I mean, yeah. he has not changed his stance, I right. want to say. Like, yeah. he is still saying, you know, this has happened. This was not a hoax. He hasn't changed his stance at all from his interview with Robin Roberts. So... You know, I'm sure we'll find out more. So that's where we are for now. And of course, we will update you um, if there are more developments in the case this morning. Well, in the meantime, let's talk about Colin Kaepernick, um, Eric Reed, and that NFL settlement. It sounds like a big one. Jamel Hill tweeted this. The NFL did not want this case to go to trial. They were going to lose. And this would have been just another mountain of bad publicity for them. Yeah, Mm. it makes a lot of sense for why the NFL would not want this case to go to trial. Mm. Karen Hunter had this to say to people calling Kaepernick a sellout for settling with the NFL. One, he sued and proved that the NFL colluded to keep him out of the league and was owed that money. Two, remember that he donated $100,000 each month without a job before that Nike deal. Yeah, that's helpful for reminders because it feels like there's been like a, a moving goalpost in this conversation about Kaepernick. Well, joining us now to talk about him and the settlement is friend of the show, Adrian Lawrence. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course. Okay, so let's just get into this. What was at stake with this lawsuit, and what do we know about the settlement? Well, you know, everything is very different for both parties, but we would assume that what's at stake for Colin Kaepernick was the possibility that he might completely and totally age out of the NFL, him being 31 now. And if his dream is truly to play, then that's something that they're holding over his head because time isn't in his favor. But then if you also look at the side of the NFL, what's in their favor is for there not to be, you know, concrete evidence of collusion and also for there not to be more poor PR. And so, you know, they both have something to lose, which made somewhat um, time is of the essence because you don't want to get into next season. And then, you know, Colin's 32 and things are not progressing. Mm. Why do you think the NFL decided to settle? Um, Well, I think it's the bad PR aspect of it. You know, um, Trump's continual involvement with the tweets and whatnot. And I think that that's something that a lot of people may be missing uh, right now because, you know, we found out about Uh, the Kaepernick settlement Friday morning after Trump said there was a national emergency. So we know he'd be tied up in those things. Also, you know, we had unfortunately another mass shooting last week, but then we're rolling into NBA All-Star Week and also the holiday weekend. All of these things factor into the possibility that the NFL and Kaepernick settled weeks or even months ago, but right now was the time to release that information because we know Trump would be busy and not be tweeting that would hurt the NFL's brand. Okay, a lot going on. Um, Kirsten Baptiste just tweeted, uh, I'm confused as to why people were mad at Colin Kaepernick. I saw that as well. I saw some people expressing frustration um, with the confidentiality because that means, you know, they can't kind of talk about the details. Also, some people saying, and a tweet alluded to this earlier, that he sold out. So can you kind of talk about what this means for Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed? Well, I think that, you know, no matter what, Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed, they were going to be criticized, no matter which route they take, if they settled or went all the way to trial. And so I don't think that they really care necessarily with how um, others will perceive them, since we know there's always going to be a split there. Uh, But in terms of the confidentiality of the settlement, that's always just a condition of settlement, because, you know, what the NFL is paying for is his silence. And so that 
there's no more Trump tweets. There are no more, you know, um, mass exodus in terms of people and viewership watching the NFL. They're paying for his silence because of the power that he commands when he rallies people in terms of injustice. And so it would only make sense that those are the only terms the NFL would settle on. And and do you think that will work? I'm curious as to whether, you know, maybe Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reid agreed to be silenced, but do you think that this is kind of the end of the story in terms of the controversy uh, that the NFL is trying to avoid? Well, I think the NFL will hope that it will be the end. Um, And it might be for a while, but the reality is, is the NFL, although it's not a government agency and a lot of people kind of treat it that way, but they are a big player in terms of having that universal stage that everyone's watching. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are more acts like this in the future to bring awareness to causes and the NFL has to essentially handle that from a PR perspective. And so hopefully this is kind of maybe a lesson for them that if they need to put real rules in place like the NBA has, or maybe just different PR mechanisms and realizing that they pluck a lot of players from the real world experience that they're having and that they're going to need to be sensitive to um, their experiences. But essentially this will definitely be taught in PR classes moving forward. Yeah, that's for sure. Adrian, as always, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What do you think about Colin Kaepernick's and Eric Reid's settlement with the NFL? I, the guys are already talking, but let us know. <laughs> let us know more. We're getting a ton of tweets using the hashtag ANCDM, as always. All right. And friends, of course, we've got another great show for y'all today. This President's Day, you will see Isaac's interview with Bing Lu, director of the Oscar-nominated documentary Minding the Gap. This is Isaac's favorite new documentary. He loves it so much. And uh, next, uh, comedian Jenna Friedman joins me for a special edition of Fire Tweets. Friends, it's time for Fire Tweets, and today I'm joined by comedian Jenna Friedman, host of Adult Swim's Soft Focus with Jenna Friedman. Hello. Hi. 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 I'm good. I, so during the break, you said something that I love. I was like, I'm sorry we're here during President's Day. I kind of wish I had the day off, but you made a good point. Yeah, I think it's an act of protest to be here not acknowledging that we have a president because we oh. don't. Ooh. Look. Fire, okay? Executive time, not around here. Um, you, you basically ready to do the fire tweet situation? Yeah, I'm though? ready. I'm okay, I'm gonna do ready. the first one. I'm excited about it. Here we go. <laughs> Tyler Mead, you tweeted, just because I'm attracted to men doesn't mean I have to like them. Thank you for that. Uh, Mood, do you agree? I love men. <laughs> They're so, you guys are in so much pain right now. You're hurting, and I just want us to all be a little kinder to men. I know. It's, 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 it's really hard. It's been really hard for me. I, I guess, understand. As a man, it's just, I don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. I feel like anytime I talk, I'm going to get in trouble. Oh. Yeah, men are scary. Yeah. And then they get upset, and they just yeah. kill everyone. Yeah, so I think we need to thing. be kinder. Yeah, very sweet. Have you said something nice to a man today, America? Mm. Yeah. Man, today is National Man Day. Oh, God. (laughs) We need to thank men so that they don't kill us. Oh, my God. Don't kill us, please. Okay, you ready to do this fire tweet? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. You hit the button (laughs) as well, you go. Oh, oh, oh. (laughs) There we go. Oh, Joel Kambooster has a really, really funny tweet. Uh, Starting in August, we should begin sending one Democratic presidential candidate home every week until we've narrowed it down to a top four who are allowed to campaign in earnest midway through all 
The eliminated girls come back for a chance to re-enter the competition. So, such a good use of the 240-word character limit. <laughs> Joel went all the way in on Joel's that. a very funny comedian. I love Joel. I do think we could bachelor uh, the Democratic. Um, you know, I wouldn't. Race. The primary, we might need to like bachelor slash RuPaul's Drag Race yes. the Democratic primary. It's a, a lot. I see you do. You of course don't shy away from politics. Have you always been tweeting about politics, or is it something like in the last few years? Since before Twitter even started. I okay, was you were tweeting. tweeting. <laughs> about politics. Yeah, I had no followers, but, you know. Yeah. Is it fun? Do you enjoy it? Is it like a... I mean, I. it's more of like, I can't help it. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's... I don't enjoy it because we do get trolled. Like, if I say maybe Bernie should run as a Republican, which I think would be really helpful for all of us, because if he's going to win, it would be nice to knock Donald Trump out of the primaries, mm -hmm. and then we could have Bernie versus a Democratic candidate. And then really, I would be open to that healthy discussion, mm. you know, socialism versus Democrat, whatever. But I would get trolled yeah. if I tweeted that. The, the Bernie bros do have opinions, I've heard. Uh, and that term, I'm so uh, beaten lot. down, but that term is now problematic because it erases all of the Russian bots who pretend to not be men on Twitter. <laughs> anyway. Don't erase the bots. Okay, screaming. Let's get to the other fire tweet because I could just talk about that for <laughs> 20 minutes. Uh, this tweet comes from Bonnie McFarland. <laughs> I wish my husband knew me the way Instagram ads do. Ah, oh, this is real. true. There's a, a pair of shoes that Instagram's been trying to get me into. But let, let's get into the next tweet of the day. Are you ready? Sure, yeah. Yeah? Um, I think we hit this together. Ready? We did it. Is that what? Oh. <laughs> oh yeah, you'll read this one. <laughs> Look, anytime, it, anytime you get anything on Twitter that's like not a death threat or calling you fat, it is a compliment. Okay. That's all that was about. So being called a Russian asset is not Thank that bad. Thank you. Yes, still got it. Still got it. Still got it. I mean, like, let's talk about soft focus because I love you, your show on Adult Swim. Like, you're you're talking about politics and the news with a focus on women's issue, whether it's you know campus rape or uh, just sexism and politics in more general. Um, did it? Does what is it like being able to talk about this in comedy now? Like having the floor. Um. I mean, is the adults from depth? No, I, uh, it's great. I mean, I think people are into talking about it in a way that they weren't before. Mm. And you can be a little bit edgier because it's like our last generation we have. Real. Yeah. <laughs> so people the clock are like, is ticking. okay, you know, but it's also scary. It's like, uh -huh. you know, there's a lot of sensitivity. So it's always a fine line. And sometimes you cross it, hopefully not, mm -hmm. but it's always a little bit of a dance. Right. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, like, like talking about rape period, you know, requires a lot of nuance and thoughtfulness if you're going to yeah. do it. And then to try to make it funny seems yeah. like a challenge. Well, it's happening. Mm -hmm. And if you're not a rapist, you know, like, <laughs> you can make it funny <laughs> if you're actually talking about it from, mm -hmm. like, the point of view of somebody who's not a rapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, so many comics are like, I can't do rape jokes. Not if they make you sound like a rapist. Right. Yeah, it's like, it's, is that a problem for you? Or people, you mo I mean, some demos might like it, but mm. mainstream, hopefully now, is turning on, against rape. And really Are y'all? I hope so, everyone. I also wanted to ask you, you know, you used to, you know, write for The Daily Show, The Late Show with David Letterman, and now, you know, you are on screen, you know, hosting your own show. Um, what's it, what's a delightful surprise in terms of switching from being behind the scenes as a writer to being on camera? Oh, um, I mean, it's nice to have, like, ownership over the things that you're doing a little mm -hmm. bit more and you're, mm -hmm. you're writing for yourself. Right. So kind of having, and adults is really cool because they give us a lot of creative control. 
So that, I would say, okay. is the coolest thing. I'm into it. Well, Jenna Freeman, thank you so much for joining Thanks us this morning. Thanks for having morning. me. I love it. You, she yeah. is uh, a Russian asset. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Screaming. You guys can catch the latest episodes of Soft Focus with Jenna Friedman on Adult Swim. Thanks again, Jenna. People are going to be like, you're a Russian astronaut. Welcome back. We're going live from the district, and here's a tweet from ABC News. California Attorney General Javier Becerra said the state will definitely and imminently be filing its 46th lawsuit against the Trump administration. This one is over the president's recent national emergency declaration on the southern border. Okay, and so we're, we're going to talk. I had no <laughs> about idea. But 46? 46? That's, and that's just one state. I have to imagine other states probably have, like, you know, multiple, multiple. I don't know. California, you know, we're the Y'all are very litigious. King, king, queens of petty over here. <laughs> California I, I, loves a lawsuit. It's I had really no idea. funny because I was we were reading that tweet in rehearsal yeah. and I was like, wait, yeah. what are the other ones? You know what it was? Because is it isn't I think Trump is maybe what the 46. I, I saw the number 40 right. and I just went, oh, it's a reference to like his numbers, but didn't realize it's I would love lawsuits. to know back home what we're what we're filing lawsuits yeah. over. I guess I'll have to Wikipedia that when you know the show. <laughs> anyway, well, happy President's Day, I guess. Uh, let's go to BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod to talk about uh just one of these lawsuits. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning. Okay, so let's get into this national emergency and the legal response. Uh, what is the argument uh, that we're going to see used in lawsuits um, against uh, this national emergency? Well, they're essentially arguing that there is no emergency and that Trump is just declaring this in order to get around Congress to get the funds to build the wall. And that would be unconstitutional, they argue, because, well, the con- the Constitution mandates that this is Congress's role. It approves funding for major spending projects like this. And then the president runs the executive branch. And you can't just get around the will of Congress if you don't like that they're not giving you the money for your campaign promise. Mm. So what is Congress doing in this situation? Like this seems ripe for them to, you know, get on their horse and charge against President Trump. Well, actually, it's a It's an interesting situation that Republicans find themselves in because Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats can force them to vote on this. So they can pass uh, a resolution that essentially would say this is not an emergency. And in the House, that'll obviously pass easily because the Democrats control the House. That'll kick over to the Senate. And it'll probably pass the Senate because even though Republicans control it, there are a bunch of Republicans who have said this is a bad idea. They would probably vote with Democrats. And then it gets even more awkward because then that goes to the president, basically saying, no, we disagree with you. Trump would veto that. That would go back to Congress. And would they have enough people to override the veto? So it's just going to be a lot of very painful, awkward votes for Republicans. We're going to have to choose between their own statements that they've made and betraying the president and angering the president, which they are loath to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I was struck by the president saying, quote, like, I didn't need to do this uh, during his speech when he was talking about national emergency, because that seems significant if you're declaring a national emergency. Is it fair to say he perhaps didn't seem very aware of of the legal situation he was setting himself up for on Friday? Yeah, well, we've seen this happen before, before but uh, he probably couldn't have made his enemies happier than with that line. I mean, yeah, he, lawyers from the White House are going to have to go into court and argue that this is a serious emergency. And now the their opponents can point to the statements of the president who literally said, 
well, I, I didn't have to do this. I did it so I could get the wall built faster. I mean, that doesn't sound like an emergency to anyone. So here we see again, Trump pretty badly undercutting his own legal team. Mm. Mm. Well, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Trump made drug trafficking part of his border wall pitch, <clears throat> but his declaration takes money from a program which is already stopping it. So it seems a little counterintuitive, right? Why is Trump pulling money from his own counter-narcotics program to then fund border security, which he says will then help the drug problem? So because he could not get Congress to approve new money, uh, him going there, declaring this emergency and going on his own, he can't make money uh, fall out of the sky here. So he's going to take it from somewhere else. And this is where he's taking it from. So these are programs that uh, fight and police uh, ports of entry and drug corridors, such as drugs that come in from sea, from the air, uh, ports of entry, that's where the vast majority of drugs actually come into the country. So, all right, the obvious question, if the vast majority of drugs come in not through the southern border, not over lands in the southern border, why are we putting all of the money there? It's purely politics. I mean, obviously the wall was a big part of Trump's campaign. It was maybe the singular thing people think about from that campaign in terms of what he was promising to do, build the wall. And so policy isn't really factoring in here. This is this is a decision about politics. And I think experts have been pretty clearly saying that this is actually going to cause more harm than good. Cause more harm than good. Well, here's a tweet from CBS News White House reporter Catherine Watson. Uh, Rod Rosenstein was expected to step down shortly after Bill Barr was confirmed attorney general. Now that Barr has been confirmed, uh, Rosenstein has an off-ramp, uh, is what Catherine's saying. So, Paul, should we basically expect Rosenstein to leave the DOJ anytime now? I know this is like a Groundhog's Day kind of question. I mean, that's true, but it does seem, all accounts are, that this is uh, getting geared up to happen. Because, I mean, before, he was in a very crucial position. Attorney, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions had recused himself from overseeing the Mueller probe. So it all went to Rosenstein. Now that is no longer the case. We have a new attorney general who has not recused himself, and it doesn't all hinge on Rosenstein's shoulders, so it looks like he can walk away this time. And uh, the indications seem to be that he's going to do just that. Before we let you go, I do want to say we have a tweet from Kirsten Baptiste saying, oh, look, it's Patriot McLeod. (laughs) Look, I'm wearing normal clothes today out of respect for you guys. Wow, well, thank you. Thank you. You You look very casual, very cozy. There. Well, I don't recognize President's Day as a Canadian, so I'm just treating this like a Monday. Oh. Dang. Okay. She did that. All right. Well, <laughs> thanks for joining us, Paul, and spouting that Canadian thanks. freedom. <laughs> yeah, take care. Up next, it is time for Isaac's sit-down interview with the director of Minding the Gap, Being Lou. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Last month, I tweeted, holy shit. Bing Liu's film, Minding the Gap, wrecked me. Skateboarding, friendship, cycles of abuse, masculinity, one of the best documentaries I've seen in a minute. The movie had me in tears multiple times, and that was before the closing credits ran as the Mountain Goats played. Bing Liu, the director of the Oscar-nominated documentary, Minding the Gap, joins me now. Good morning, how are you, man? I'm great, I just flown from LA on a red eye, so I'm as <laughs> good as I can be, I guess. Yeah. You're like, a little, still waking up a yeah, little bit? A little bit, yeah. I understand that. What, speaking of moments that might have woken you up a little bit, what was it like to find out that you were nominated for an Oscar? I had the flu for a couple of days before, so I, like, I hadn't slept at all, you know, so I, like, I, it, I think I was 
I was binge watching Brooklyn Nine Nine like throughout the night, mm -hmm. and then I was like, "Oh, time to stream the announcements." And then it got announced, and I was like, "You know, I just like let it, I let it sink in." I think I just wanted to make sure, it, you know, maybe it, would, it wasn't a mistake. You know? <laughs> um, and then I had to like take some Tylenol and go on a shoot. <laughs> and, and you had to go go yeah. do some work. Yeah. Were you expecting it? Were, did, did you have? Like, like, had anybody whispered anything to you? Like, it could be a contender, or it was. I mean, it was in all the trades and the buzz, and you know, yeah. it was in all the things. But I'd also heard that the doc branch traditionally is just really unpredictable. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I'm just the type of guy who just sort of, you know, like doesn't have a lot of expectations. So I was just prepared for, you know, whatever outcome. All right. Well, let's talk about the film itself, man. Uh, listen, when when did you know that you were making a documentary that was? about more than just skateboarding? Um, I mean, it was sort of built in into the beginning. Uh, and that's to say, I really didn't start the film until five years ago. Um, and for a long time, it just felt like this present-day story. Um, it started with me going around the country and interviewing skateboarders from all over and just trying to get a sense of what it was like growing up and you know, trying to deal with the things that I guess I went through as a child, but you know, by proxy through other people. And then um, a year in, I went back to Rockford, Illinois, where I grew up, and I ran into this guy, Kier, and I immediately fell in love with him. Um, shortly after, I ran into this other guy, Zach, who I knew a little bit growing up, and he was about to become a father, and he was even self-aware about this, but he just wasn't quite ready for fatherhood. And mm -hmm. you know, we just went on that journey. That was around the time when I um, started partnering up with Cartemquin Films in Chicago, who's best known for Hoop Dreams. Okay. Um, that's when I realized, like, oh, you know, documentaries can be sort of like fiction films. Yeah. It wasn't until the final months of editing that I dug into archival, you know, constructed this like you know twelve year span of of a story. Mm -hmm. And you did. You had those archives. Do you remember when you first picked up a camera and like why you started shooting your friend skateboarding? Um, I, it was it was actually because I saw a couple other kids who were making skate videos, and I just really appreciated you know how much they cared about it in a way that other people had cared about skateboarding. You know, they were really really just spent a lot of time editing and shooting and looking at other skate videos, and you know it was it was a genre, and so I wanted to do that too. So, um, yeah, you talk about your friendship with Zach and Kier. Uh, at first, what did it mean to focus on them and kind of let the other parts of the project kind of slide away? It was sort of out of expediency. I mean, I was working as a camera assistant in Chicago, and um, yeah, I just couldn't afford to go to Portland or New York or St. Louis all the time and keep following these other people. Um, so I just did the 90-minute, two-hour drive to Rockford every time I got a free chance to, to follow these boys. Um, but it, I mean, it still took a while for me to let go of like this one guy in Portland. I just kept flying back to follow him. Uh, eventually, though, just the things that happened in Zach and Kier's lives were like you couldn't script them. It was just so unbelievable, and you know, they were the ones that ended up just um, you know like re re being being maintained in all the rough cuts that I was making. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, really, a third subject emerges, which is yourself. Uh, how, how did you kind of were you able to distance yourself from the story to make this larger arc? Um, and, and when did you realize that you were going to become a part of the documentary? Uh, that decision came late. Uh, so the scene ends with one of the boys moving out of the city. It's like it was his goal from the beginning, and he finally does it. Uh, it wasn't until a year after that that I did this interview with my mom, which is the anchor scene for my for my storyline. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't like I went into those. So it was it was sort of like a like an aesthetic problem at first. I was like, I don't want to do voiceover or cards on the screen, or you know, like sit myself in front of a camera and talk into it. 
Um, maybe it's more, maybe it's just be more organic if I interviewed my mom, my brother, and a former mentor of mine from, from Rockford. And when I went into those interviews, I thought of it as exposition. Like, I'm going to get these people to give backstory to, you know, for, for my character, the filmmaker. And what I didn't expect was for, uh, for how difficult those conversations sort of became. Mm -hmm. um, you know, part of the scene with my mom is that I, I kind of challenged her a little bit about, you know, what had happened. And I didn't realize that I was going to do that. Um, and I think I, I walked out of that conversation realizing that although I'd sort of denied myself in my 20s, you know, the, the feelings of, of um, bitterness or, or blame towards her, that eight-year-old, that nine-year-old, that 10-year-old version of myself did have those feelings. And that came out in that interview. I mean, it's incredible to hear that you, you, you made that decision in that moment because I think it translates so strongly onto the film in that moment. Like, like it's clear that that was an organic moment. Uh, and it, so, and that's, uh, the whole film is made up of so many of those moments. Again, I know we're, we're trying to stay away from spoilers because I want so many people to have the experience that I had as you slowly learn that this is a story not just about skateboarding. But what did it mean to you? What do you hope a viewer takes away from your film about abuse? I mean, I think my, my main thing, and this is, like, none of this is explicit. It's very, you know, just um, I'm hoping people get this from the narrative. But I just don't think it helps to demonize um, perpetrators of violence. That doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable for the actions that they do and, you know, create a set of consequences. But um, I think we have to start looking at the causes of violence and not just the symptoms. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of what this film is about. You know, it's about all the complexities of how that cycle just keeps turning. Mm -hmm. And how abuse is kind of handed down from person to person. Right. I was so part of like why I started this project too is as I was entering my 20s, I just, you know, I thought I was trying to become a better person, right? And like I, I avoid in my adolescence, I just tried avoiding anything that reminded me of my stepfather and I didn't want to take on those traits. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of became scared that I was just going to happen. It was just going to happen anyway, like accidentally, um, because that's what I was witnessing around me. You know, I think I was witnessing my peers just like start accidentally becoming their fathers. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was scary. Mm -hmm. It was, yeah, I mean, it's something, <laughs> something I deeply relate to. Yeah. And that's why your film connected uh, with me so much. One last question here, because you are, you're headed to the Oscars, man. Do you have, like, is there anyone you want to shoot your shot with, get a <laughs> selfie with? Like, is there anyone you're just so excited to meet? I saw you, you got to, uh, to meet Tony Hawk. I got, so yeah, the past year has been crazy. I got to meet Tony Hawk. You know, Barry Jenkins has been a big supporter. Uh-huh. Uh, I can't, yeah, I mean, Stephen Yoon. Um, I've gotten a lot, I've gotten, like, I've, I met Obama last year. What? Like, you know, like, spoke at his summit, and he posted about, you know, our film being his, you know, what his top 10 films of 2018. I mean, it's it's been a crazy year. I feel like I'm already super satisfied. If I can get another selfie with, like, I don't know, Lady Gaga or something, maybe. Like, Lady Gaga's yeah, the... I, no, no, the, no, no, I like no, that, man. I, You're I'll, setting the bar I'm, high. No, I like that. I'll just take what I can get. You no, know? man. I'm just like the doc. I'm just the Midwest bumpkin. Like, no, I want you to dream like, big on this yeah. one. I want you to know. I want you to come back to this moment. If you see Lady Gaga, I say go for it, man. But seriously, thank you for creating such a beautiful piece of art. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Listen, uh, if you have not watched Mining the Gap yet, you have to. It is streaming on Hulu. No excuses. Go watch it. More AM to DM is up next.
Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Right now, there are huge anti-government protests in Sudan and private Facebook groups that women initially started to talk to their crushes or talk about their crushes have turned into powerful tools to expose abusive security officers. And BuzzFeed News East Africa correspondent Tamara Griffin tweeted, uh, Sudanese women are doxing state security forces in private Facebook groups initially set up to creep on their crushes. Uh, they're basically the unofficial intelligence apparatus of the country, which is also true for my group text. Um, Tamara Griffin joins us now from East Africa to talk about her story on how these groups went from discussing men to exposing police. Tamara, wow, good morning. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hi, I just, this is incredible. Uh, let's just get into it. So how did these Facebook groups work when they were initially set up by these Sudanese women? So originally these groups served the sole purpose of women connecting with each other because in Sudan, the morality laws really discourage women from gathering in public places. And so as a, as a response to that, they created Facebook groups really to just connect with each other. Um, the, the primary topic was, of course, men that they were interested in, but also if a woman had started her own business, it was a way for her to um, market herself. Um, but, but the conversation was definitely dominated by women wanting to find out more about a guy that they saw at a party a guy that they, they have class with at university. Um, and the size of these groups was such that the likelihood of someone in the group knowing a guy that was being posted about was extremely high. Okay, and, and that alone is an interesting facet, right? Because of morality laws and culture, you know, even casually just saying, you know, this guy in my class at school is really cute. You can't just talk about that in the open. So we go to Facebook. Okay, so now we have this Facebook group with, you know, as you mentioned, like a lot of women in them, they're very popular. How do they go from talking about their local businesses or cute boys to focusing on anti-government groups? So once the crackdown started, um, a lot of these state security forces officers started to abuse protesters and just responded with what a lot of human rights organizations have frankly called excessive force. So a lot of the women in these groups started seeing in their own individual timelines, people posting photos of these security officers saying, you know, this guy beat up my friend, this woman arrested my friend. I saw that, you know, this officer sprayed tear gas in our faces when we were protesting. Who knows who this guy is? You know, people are really angry. So they want to know the identities of the people who are, who are responding with this excessive force, either to exact revenge or maybe just as a form of, I don't know, like a coping mechanism. So essentially, these women started posting photos of these officers in the group. And similar to the way that other women would respond with information saying, you know, this is where this guy lives. He goes to my local supermarket. They, they started doing the same thing with the officers. So the same skills that they were using basically to, to dig into their crushes' lives are now being transferred sort of for the revolution. Mm -hmm. I... I love this so much. Like, it, it's so real. It's like, yeah, I can find that cute boy's Instagram handle for you too. I can also expose shady cops. That's basically what's going on. Um, here's something exactly you about it. Yeah, you tweeted, the groups are huge, sometimes with hundreds of thousands of members, which means the likelihood of someone recognizing the face of, say, a female officer who made one woman drink vinegar, I'm serious, um, after she was arrested is very high. And that is... Wow, a stunning example. So what happens once these police are exposed on Facebook? 
So once they've been exposed, um, a range of things can happen. It can be something as simple as them losing a bunch of friends on social media. People are calling these people because their phone numbers are also being posted in the groups and saying, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. I know that you're, you know, acting against protesters and I'm not for that. So we're no longer friends. I'm not coming to your wedding. Two more extreme responses um, in which, you know, people are being, are being bombarded in their homes by their own neighbors. Because one of the things about this, this whole um, exposure is that a lot of these officers are keeping their jobs hidden. They're not telling their friends or family that they're actually working with the state. So when they're exposed, sometimes their friends, their family members, their girlfriends are finding out for the first time what they're doing. Um, and people are really angry. I mean, I've seen videos of people being driven out of their homes and sort of going into hiding, postponing dates of birthday parties and weddings, or now holding these events in private. Because once people find out who they are, um, there's, there's really no telling what the response can be. Mayor, this is just incredible. Um, can you give some more examples of, of the difference this movement has made? Because it, it does seem like it's, it's making a real impact. Definitely. Um, I've spoken to female protesters who told me that they are now being approached in the street by men who are also involved in the demonstrations, expressing that, you know, before I used to think that women were just a burden, but I've been seeing what you guys are doing in the Facebook groups. I'm seeing what you guys are doing in the streets protesting, and it's just given me so much respect for you now. So it's sort of changing the conversation around gender within the country, but it's also empowering the women themselves. A lot of these women who are sort of involved in the doxing um, were not really involved in politics before. They sort of just kept to themselves. But once they saw what these state security officers were doing to protesters, they figured that they had to take action somehow. Um, so a lot of women sort of started their activism, so to speak, in these Facebook groups, and then it manifested the, itself by them showing up in the streets protesting. Um, and so I think overall, the, what these women are doing in Facebook groups is, is sort of giving this, this much needed sort of jolt um, of energy to, to the movement as a whole. Absolutely. When I say Black women are from the future, this is yet another example, Tamara. <laughs> thank you so Absolutely. much for joining us. Gosh, thank you. Wow. Thanks. Whew, my goodness. All right, friends. Uh, up next, Stephanie sits down with interior designer Nicole Gibbons, of the, uh, the CEO of Claire Paint. Uh, paint colors, it turns out, are very controversial. There's been a lot of discussion this morning. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Lady to Lead, and I am so excited to be joined by Nicole Gibbons, the founder and CEO of Claire Payne. Nicole, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about your amazing career. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. So you started your design career by being a blogger as a creative outlet hobby, right? Yeah. How did you go from that to becoming an entrepreneur and having your own business? Yeah, it was a long journey. So I had a day job. I worked in, as a PR executive for a big fashion retailer. And so while I was there, I started a blog, just like you said, hobby, um, and immediately knew that that design was what I wanted to do, but it was during the recession. So I kind of wrote it out until the economy picked up, made the leap. Then I focused on building a design firm, and then I used the design firm as a sort of a platform to catapult this new business, Claire. That is so cool. It's like, oh, I was a PR executive. I didn't have enough on my plate. I'm going to have this other amazing career and yeah. outlet as well. It's all about the side hustle. Exactly. No, it's so true. Yeah. So your company, Claire Paint, is very much targeted towards millennials. I want to shout out some of your paint color names because they're really funny. You have 
money moves. I think we have a little bit of swatch here. We have rosé season. We have sriracha. I mean, obviously very beautiful paint colors, but yeah. I'm curious, do millennials have very different decorating habits than, let's say, the boomers? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is we're really not just a paint brand for millennials. Right. Like, uh, my point of view on decor is that everybody wants to make their homes beautiful, and I think that's, like, a, a you know, something that transcends age. I definitely think we have a, a younger appeal, but we really are, you know, marketing our products to anyone who— um, you know, who, who really wants to, to transform their home. Who wants a beautiful paint color yeah, that just yeah. happens to spark memories yeah. of rosé yeah. every time you look at the walls. And the names <laughs> are so fun. I really wanted people to, like, feel something when they heard the names and, and evoke a, a feeling. And so we had a lot of fun with naming. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely have some favorites. <laughs> yeah, what, do you, what is your personal favorite? Well, it, it names, not necessarily color, right. but uh, obsessed with Cardi B, so many moves. Uh, um, love it. Yeah, I'm also from Detroit, so Motor City, an homage to my hometown. That's I love it. Favorite name, yeah. Very cool. So, we've talked a lot about in this segment about how there are so many amazing female entrepreneurs starting new businesses coming up, but unfortunately, VCs are still overwhelmingly male and white. So, I wanted to ask your personal experience as a woman of color with a company that does cater to women. Like, obviously, women are usually the ones decorating homes. Yeah. Did you face any weird pushback? Not necessarily pushback because I think all of the VCs recognize that this was a huge overlooked market opportunity and VCs think in terms of dollar signs. So I think it, that was enough to pique their interest. But I definitely think I experienced some uh, instances where VCs kind of looked side-eye a little bit like, you, huh? Okay? Because I don't look like the typical entrepreneur, you know? I'm, I'm an African-American woman and I think most uh, uh, people think of what you mentioned, which is a white male when it comes to, to the companies that get venture-backed. And um, so, yeah, but I, I think I had a solid, um, you know, business plan and enough confidence to go out there and do it. So I was able to raise capital successfully. And we really hope that someday you are exactly what people think about when they think of a female entrepreneur, any yeah. entrepreneur, because, I mean, the reason, like, the fact that VCs are overwhelmingly male and white is so ridiculous. So obviously, yeah. you know, you had this amazing career and you took this huge risk by going out and making you know, this whole new company for yourself. And I feel like there's a lot of women who are doing like the corporate grind who do have this creative idea in their heads, but just they're not sure how to execute it. Yeah. Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I think the number one thing is to, to be patient because a lot of times people see what you're doing on Instagram and on the internet and it feels like an overnight success. Mm -hmm. But my journey to launching Claire, if you really start at the beginning, was almost 10 years, you know, of each step in the career path from side hustle to full-time business to doing television to then parlaying that into this new company. And so um, I think you've really got to have grit and be able to like stick it out because there's a lot of ups and downs. Starting a business is hard and uh, just like have that confidence in, in yourself. Well, now that I have you here with me, I have to selfishly ask you, I'm obsessed with home decor, but obviously I am not made of money. I don't have as many money moves as Cardi B. <laughs> so do you have any tips for decorating on a budget and creatively you know, using paint to transform your home when you don't have all the money? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, paint is literally the least expensive thing that you can do to completely transform the look of your space. So number one, absolutely paint. Um, and I would say go with a vibrant color. You know, neutrals, people love neutrals because they're so safe and neutrals can be really beautiful too, but a bold color can really make a dramatic impact. And then sprinkle in lots of fun accessories. So pillows, throws, things that can easily be swapped out and that aren't terribly expensive. I love a good throw pillow. I might head to Home Goods after this. Yeah. <laughs> Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Up next, we are reading more of your tweets.
Welcome back. Okay, we asked you for your thoughts on Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed's settlement with the NFL. Uh, Lovest said, uh, happy they got their money, just wish it wasn't confidential. I wanted everything to come out. I know, I wonder if this is one of those things where we are going to find out if the details leaked at some point. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, the, I feel like... They clearly it, had something that the NFL was If scared. this had gone to trial, I feel right. like it would have been a shit show, but it would have been fascinating, illuminating. We would have found out a lot about the NFL, but right. the NFL has a lot of controversy he's facing it right now, it's so I feel like they wanted to sweep this on. under the rug. And, totally, totally. Yeah. Also, um, Adrian, I thought, made such a good point that she was like, for for um, Colin Kaepernick's uh, side, like, time is of the essence. Oh, if yeah. he wants to play, time is very finite, so I was like, oh, that's a good point, right? Like, he doesn't want this to go on forever if that's going to come between him and possibly being able to play, because Eric Reed, I believe, is currently playing now. Right, That was that's my question as well, and maybe people who are watching can answer mm-hmm. this. Is there a chance that he could play in the NFL again? Like, I yeah. thought it was still up there, but I mean, is it possible he could come back? But yeah, I mean, he's in his 30s. That's usually, right. between 30 and 40, I think is usually when NFL players retire. Yeah. Well, Kristen Baptiste tweeted, I don't doubt the seriousness of, seriousness of Zaid's group text. I stumbled that's on that true. laughing. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. My group texts are terrifying. They scare me sometimes. Good morning, everyone. What do you talk um, about? Everything. <laughs> There are lawyers. We got people in poly- You don't want it, girl. It's 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 a fearsome group of people. But I also, I do want to say um, with Tamara's story about the women in Sudan, right, that it is, part of it is going on. It's like women finding a safe space to talk about things that they can't discuss in public. As simple as like wanting to date. Um, and out of that, you know, out of that, something very powerful and political happening is like, really inspiring, you know? Yeah. And it's like, just like, you know, women coming together um, is always powerful, I think. It I was know. cool to see. I love Tamara. We miss I love her. Tamara. Tamara worked with us, I think, for like three years yeah. before moving out to Africa. And we get to yeah. see her like once a year now. Yeah. But we're we just going to keep having her it's on the so show. It's so good to see your face. <laughs> <laughs> so good to see her. And of course, we could not end today's show without giving a shout out to one of our producers, Yay. Caroline Moss, uh, who got married over the weekend. Oh, you look so beautiful. Seriously? That dress is so beautiful. She looks so beautiful, so happy. I don't know exactly where she got married, but they had these beautiful views of the Brooklyn Bridge. And yes, Carol, I am revealing how much I stalked you over the weekend (laughs) at your wedding. But you look so beautiful. And we can't wait to hear all about everything that happened in your amazing day. Carol works behind the scenes. She produces a lot of the social videos that you see celebrities do, and she works on different projects. She's one of the smartest, most talented, funniest people I know. Like, getting to work with her is a true joy. So... I'm happy there's more joy in your life, Carol, girl. I know. And I hope you get to relax. Enjoy married life. Yes. It's great. Enjoy that honeymoon, honey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to our guests, Adrian Lawrence, Jenna Friedman, Paul McLeod, Bing Liu, Tamara Griffin, and Nicole Gibbons. All right, friends. I'll be back here tomorrow with Sylvia O'Bell. Enjoy the rest of your day. Black History Month, let's just try to keep it excellent. It's a little wild. <laughs> We're trying. We're trying. <laughs> We're trying. <laughs>